Okay. Mm -hmm. Great. Hey, hi, everybody. Hi. hi. This is already one of my favorite readings. <laughs> <laughs> so, welcome to the UCSD Library. My name is Nina Maracunian. I'm the literature librarian as well as the curator for the Archive for New Poetry in our special collections. I mentioned the Archive for New Poetry because this reading is part of the archive. The recording will be available um, in about a week. It's publicly available via our um, library catalog, so roger.ucsd.edu. If you just search for new writing series, um, you'll get a whole bunch of links with all of the um, current and past new writing series readings um, that you can download and listen to at your leisure. Um, because we are recording this for the Q&A happening after the reading, we will have some mics to pass around. So if you have a question, please wait for the mic so that we can pick you up um, sound-wise. A couple housekeeping things, just to be aware. There are restrooms and a water fountain um, through that back door. If you do need to leave early, please use that back door so that you don't disturb the reading. Um, and if everybody can please take a moment and make sure that their cell phones are turned off. All right, thank you, everyone. Thank you, Nina. Thank you so much. Uh, we're so excited to be a part of the library, to be here in the library today. And uh, a huge part of that is because of Nina. So a huge uh, uh, thanks to Nina. Um, so glad to see you. Hi, everyone. My name is uh, Professor Brandon Sam. I'm a professor and poet here at UCSD. Excited to be here. Excited because uh, Gabrielle uh, uh, Sybil is here today, coming down from uh, Los Angeles to, to read for us and perform for us. And we're super excited excited and grateful and honored that she's here today. Um, uh, two of our fabulous uh, MFA uh, graduate student writers uh, will be uh, introducing Gabrielle today. Aiden LaRue and Wamboy uh, Wainana will be uh, introducing uh, Gabrielle this evening. So we're going to turn that over to them and really excited for their introduction. Before we do that, want to uh, kind of alert you to a couple events coming up. Um, Tommy Pico, an amazing uh, poet and writer, uh, originally from the uh, Viejas Reservation and part of uh, a member of the, the Kumeyaay Nation. Uh, again, uh, the Kumeyaay Nation uh, want to acknowledge that this is the land that we're presently on, their land. So excited that uh, Tommy Pico will be reading for us uh, next Tuesday. That's going to be over in the loft. Uh, we're co-sponsoring with Ethnic Studies. It's going to be a, a really amazing event. So please uh, come out for that. It's at 7 o'clock in the loft. And then also looking forward to an alumni reading. We've got some uh, great um, uh, uh, graduates of our MFA program who have recently published books, and they're going to come and read for us, and we're going to be in the literature department in the um, uh, uh, Deserto room, and that's going to be May 8th um, at 5 o'clock. So um, check us out on Facebook. Uh, check us out on our website. Follow us, and uh, definitely mark your calendars for these upcoming events. And I also want to say that Gabrielle's actually going to be back here next week, right? Ooh. May 1st. May <laughs> so we're really excited for that and want to promote that and want to see you out for, for that event next uh, May 1st, I think, right? And um, It's going to be a workshop, so that would be fantastic. And also want to say and promote that uh, 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 Gabrielle has uh, her most recent book for sale uh, up here on the, on the table. So definitely um, want to uh, come up, meet the writer, buy a book, um, uh, celebrate the writer. Um, so uh, do remember that we do have books for sale. So now I want to turn it over to Aiden and Wamboy. 
Oh, no. <laughs> oh, my. Okay. Gabrielle Seville is a black feminist performance artist, writer, and community arts activist, originally from Detroit, Michigan. She has premiered 50 performances globally, both individually and in collaboration with other artists, and currently teaches creative writing and critical studies at CalArts. Named one of Entropy's best nonfiction books of 2017, her book Swallow the Fish merges memoir and artist monograph by offering forth performance scripts, reflections from those in attendance, poems, photographic documentation, and research in order to excavate notions of embodiment. Early in her book, Gabrielle Seville poses a question, what is the training of an artist? something that perhaps some of you are wondering in here. How indeed might we think about what is necessary in order to develop and hone a creative practice? Her response to her own question is that training is a more methodical way of approaching, considering, and developing a body of knowledge. Mm -hmm. The key here is the way that Seville refers to a body of knowledge. Bodies of knowledge are usually metaphorical, but this body of knowledge is quite literal for she has championed what it means by, to be a black feminist artist by using her body as material. To be an artist is a way of being, and I would argue that to be trained as an artist, one must explore ways of being embodied and intuitive. One of the most tried and true struggles of a writer is wrestling with the fallibility of language, and Seville has circumvented this by constructing her own language of the body. It is a rhetoric that is uniquely expressive. Take her piece, Fat Black Performance Art, a slideshow, in which she presents slides describing seminal works of performance art and replaces any reference to the performer with the words, a fat black woman. With this maneuver, she challenges her audience to consider the ways in which a body like hers is still alienated from the canon because the art world clings to antiquated notions of beauty, both in the works themselves and in the artists who make them. The crux of Seville's examinations of the training of artists comes when she recounts a moment early in her career when she was gathered with a number of her peers to discuss a piece of performance her friend Murray was working on. Okay, great. <laughs> the work was going to involve a fish, but the precise manner of integrating it into the performance was yet to be determined. The group wondered if it should involve hooks, knives, pouring water into a fishbowl, drinking the water, what gestures might be enacted. Finally, one of them suggested that Murray swallow the fish. A debate ensued about the ethics of enacting harm on an animal for art, and ultimately the fish wasn't eaten. But the act of considering swallowing a fish whole and alive opens up deeper questions for Seville about how desire and fear are entangled. Of her friend Marie, she says, I wanted her, a black woman, to stare down craziness, to allow herself to be crazy, to do something crazy on stage. Hell, I wanted to swallow the fish myself, to be as loose and crazy and unstoppable as those white lady performance artists like Karen Finley, Holly Hughes, and Marina Abramovic. I wondered if I could do it. She continues, to swallow the fish, you had to have something more than a reason. In a way, you had to reject reason itself. In this way, Gabrielle Seville is not fearless. 
Rather, she is the singular sort of human and artist who chooses to encounter fear through her work. The fish was her call to action, her standing at attention in order to excavate the most essential question of how we can train ourselves in the ever ephemeral notion of what it means to be an artist. Savelle's newest book, Experiments in Joy, celebrates black feminist collaborations and solos in essays, letters, performance texts, scores, images, and more, documenting her work with From the Hive, Number One Gold, and Call and Response, a groundbreaking gathering of black women performers at Antioch College in 2014, whose collaborative call inspired its title. In one of several correspondences included in the text, Seville describes her first encounter with Melvin Dixon's novel, Vanishing Rooms, pretty much encapsulating my encounter with her book. She writes, I sat down and poured through it, and it poured through me, and it seemed like glimpsing the world I was trying to enter. Something about art and dance and sexuality and breaking the boundaries of good black girl, black good girl, I was forever trained to be. In the throes of negotiating these very boundaries, Seville's blindingly generous text came to me as something like revelation. Articulating the urgency of this work, the breaking, in my necessary pursuit of joy, and more essentially, how far from alone, how held, in fact, I am in it by the community alive within these pages. In her essay, Joy, Zadie Smith describes the experience embodied as distinct from pleasure. She writes, I have pleasure. It's a feeling I want to experience and own. A beach holiday is a pleasure. A new dress is a pleasure. But on that dance floor, I was joy, or some small piece of joy with all these other hundreds of people who were also a part of joy. What can people do together that we can't do alone? Seville challenges us to consider. What can we discover in ourselves only by way of other people? In her work, we are seen and shown back to ourselves as each other, whole and holy pieces of joy. In every statement I read about her work, I found the words, the aim of her work is to open up space. I invite you to join me in opening up this space for Gabrielle Seville. That was extraordinary. Thank you so much. I feel like already some of my dreams are coming true. Um, Thank you, all of you, for coming to spend this time here with each other and with me. Special thanks to the creative writing program here at UCSD and to Brandon. Brandon and I have been communicating about this reading since June. So just to know, we've been committed. And also to the incredible faculty who I love so much in this program. Um, I have a lot. I have a lot for you. So let us get started. And also, again, I do want to acknowledge that we are on native land.
preparation for ritual is ritual. How shall we start this time? Ellen told me Intizake Shange came out in a white bustier and white satin robe airboxing to some song. Ellen didn't say which one, but I imagined Willie Cologne or my Detroit homegirls, Martha and the Vandellas, dancing in the streets, which we need to be doing right now, with dancing as a form of resistance and kicking up our heels to knock down walls. Intizake was bobbing and weaving, a black woman artist dispelling demons and conjuring glamour. Then she smiled and opened her book and read her poems. Let's do something like that. Get ready. This is going to be a lot of things. A mixtape of memory and fortune telling, a compendium of collaborations and solos, hidden figures shining into light. The black woman performance artist between windflower and sea. Girls in their bedrooms, prisons and classrooms, rock stars and fuzz, hot cones and molecular extinction. Really, this will be a lot. This book is a lot of people, my friends, blood and chosen family, ancestors, artists, muses, students, and multiple versions of myself. Still remembering, still trying to claim joy. Joy? What joy? Right now, threats to the earth, the water, the land, the sky, the young, the old, the black, the brown, the female, the femme, the queer, the trans, the disabled, the Muslim, the migrant, the scientist, the artist, the press, the word, the constitution, the human, the animal, and every other being have never felt more dire. It's book five, Harry Potter. <laughs> For real. <laughs> so what then in the middle of this mess might it mean to claim joy? Intizaki arrives in her satin robe, dancing her fists in the air, ready to declare her voice. I wasn't there, but I love this story so much, passed on through kindred as legend. This opening, Intizaki's opening, was an experiment in joy, in real time and in this book a call and response, a shifting of modes, an attempt to set it off in a new way. Behold the gifts of living presence. Behold the legacy of black feminist ancestors. Read Intizake Shange. Read Lucille Clifton. Won't you celebrate with me? Read June Jordan, Audre Lorde, Suzanne Césaire, Jane Cortez, Jacqueline Bourget-Rosier, Lori Carlos, Octavia Butler, Catherine Dunham, Ashe. Read Black Feminist Ancestors. Read Black Feminist Writers. Read Black Feminist Performance Artists. Read Black Feminist Poets. Read my book. Oh, okay, we'll read it, we'll read it. We'll read it. Black 
feminist ancestors, because I'm not an ancestor yet, black feminist ancestors don't just rest in power. They radiate it. Black feminist joy does not disown awareness of systemic injustice. It does not deny oppression. It defies it. It doubles down on the imperative to imagine against the status quo, to dream bigger with satin and song, with flesh and mind and fancy footwork. Don't you crave this sweat and glow so urgent and so lovely? Let's dance and move and write and start some shit and change the world and make art by ourselves and with our friends. Are you with me? Yes. Are you with me? Yes. Aw, we're getting there. We're getting there. What can people do together that we can't do alone? What can we discover in ourselves only by way of other people? Friends, here at UCSD, I'm so happy that you're here. Even as I worry that this book is not enough that I am not enough, that I'm not enough. I'm still giddy at your presence. Before we get going, will you breathe with me? Let's take a moment and let's breathe. We can ground ourselves, light a candle, and honor the first stewards of this land. We can make a boat and sneak off to this, I wait, that's Bjork. <laughs> we can dance to Prince. We can curl up under the covers and sip tea. We can reread freedom dreams. We can drink wine or sweep or clean the house. We can scream whatever we want at the top of our lungs. <laughs> if you're willing, we can make this invocation. And my Caribbean brethren here asked me at the beginning, wait, is that Marisha? Sure. <laughs> In Haiti, we would call this a wa, which is a symbol that you could put down with cornmeal or with chalk as a way to signal and activate or invite or open into the space spirit. Now, this is not a religious ceremony that we're about to have here, but for me, a symbol like this is a marker of a threshold and of a way to shift from one kind of state or one kind of space to another one. It's important because I, I recognize, how many of you here identify yourselves as writers? Raise your hand. Okay, and for those of you who don't identify yourselves as writers, how many of you have to write things routinely? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so just for the sake of 
of argument here, we're going to bring you into the realm of writing. And what I'm so astonished by with this kind of image, this is a kind of writing. And I remember talking to my father. My father is from Haiti. My mother is African American. And as I was saying to Aiden, he's perfect, isn't it? <laughs> Both of my parents were born on the exact same day, same year, in two different countries. Anyway, my Haitian father, I was talking to him about this practice of creating vivis. And I said, well, you know, I heard that you're supposed to do this with cornmeal, but what if you don't have cornmeal? And he said, well, do it with chalk. I said, well, what if you don't have chalk? He said, well, do it with the, with the feather of a chicken. I was like, well, okay, well, what if you don't have the feather of a chicken? He said, do it with your hand in the air. So, with that little anecdote, we can do this invocation, if you're willing. Here, I'm going to put this down and move this over because I think it'll still be loud enough. Where's Valentina? Is it still, is it loud enough for you? It's okay? Okay. So, I'm going to show you this and then if you are interested, I'm going to show you the whole thing. If you're interested, we can do it again and you can do it with me. But like all good things, this is a consent-based practice. So if there's something you don't want to do, don't do it. Right. Okay? All right. If you're willing, we can make this invocation. We pull strength down from our ancestors. We pull energy up. from our ancestors. We press ourselves further down into the ground. We take power from each other and we bring it to ourselves We take power from ourselves and we bring it to each other. Okay, for those who are willing, I invite you to stand. And I'll lead you through. It helps to take that breath. Yes, for those of you who need it, it's here for you. We pull strength down from our ancestors. Even if you don't know who they are, there they are for you. We pull energy up from our ancestors. We press ourselves further down into the ground. Feel the bottom of your feet, even if you're wearing shoes, feel them. Yes. We take power from each other and we bring it to ourselves. Ooh. 
We take power from ourselves and we bring it to each other. Thank you. Experiments in joy. As our two kind introducers mentioned, I do identify as a black feminist performance artist as well as a poet and a writer. And I thought, because you have this incredible room, thank you, Dr. Seuss, <laughs> and all of this technology, I thought it might be helpful just to show you, almost in a Pachacacha style, just images from my performance practice. So it's a way of inviting you a little bit into my world of performance. And during the Q&A, if there's an image that really struck you and you want to know more about it, I can tell you. But this is just to kind of let you see some of my journey. And anyone, how many of you actually have had a chance to read my first book, Swallow the Fish? Okay, well, there's something good waiting for the rest of you. Because <laughs> these are images also that you might recognize if you've read that book. And also, back in 2002, I didn't know anything about documentation of how to use a video camera, so some of this stuff looks real, looks real special. This, I will just tell you this. This is a performance I did in my closet. I had just moved from New York City to the Midwest. And... Um, that walk-in closet was about the size of my bedroom in New York, so I did a whole performance there and people sat on the bed. Hip-hop globalization. Ah, the performance of writing love letters and getting, and then paying others to write love letters to me. <laughs> I worked at a predominantly white women's college. If <laughs> anyone has ever studied Sarge Bartman, the hot and top Venus. I could spend a whole hour just talking about all of this, but suffice it to say, this is in Mexico City. Those are mariachis. And um, this was Obama's first inauguration. And even though they didn't speak English, they were singing songs like Say It Loud, I'm Black and I'm Proud. <laughs> so what does it mean ultimately to be a black feminist performance artist? Touch, don't touch. I'm on my knees, a plump black woman in black from head to toe with blue black lipstick almost kissing the microphone. My thick, black, curly, natural hair is Afro-fabulous. I stick my hair in the face of a smiling, bearded white man in glasses sitting cross-legged on the floor. Y'all have heard Solange, right? Yes. Y'all yes. have heard her song, Don't Touch My Hair, right? Yes. Well, touch my hair. Touch it. Touch it. Touch it. Touch 
How dare you touch it? Who do you think you are? Why did you do that? Why did you do that? Why did you touch it? Touch it, touch it. Go ahead, touch her. Touch her. Touch her. Touch her. Uh, you know how those people always try to touch your hair? What's wrong with them? Yes, go ahead. Said 
were right. Whatever the rules of blackness said was right. Whatever the rules my parents said were right. Whatever the rules the school said was right. Whatever the rules said were right. It is this goodness that got to me. Performance art liberated me from all that. That's an aspirational statement. But I did write it down, and that's how it reads in the book, so we're just going to go with that now. Performance art liberated me from all that. The scripts that predetermined exactly what was happening, or what was supposed to happen, exactly what I was supposed to think, say, and do, and how both powerless and angry I would feel about it. That moment with my hair at the Black Squirrel Bar in Washington, D.C. illustrates one of my favorite aspects of being a black feminist performance artist. The opportunity to shift the balance between what is expected of me as a plum, dark-skinned, natural-haired, black woman in America, and what I will actually do. <laughs> I appreciate that. And if you feel like, you know what, Anna Joy Springer just modeled something important about this whole experience. If you feel like you need to like snap your fingers or go, mm-hmm, or whatever you need to do, you know, open up that space. Follow, follow that impulse. Okay, so... As Wamboy mentioned, I think, in that part of the introduction, Experiments in Joy as a title comes out of a call that was created through an experience called Call and Response, which was a historic dynamic of black women in performance that took place in 2014 at Antioch College. And there are essays, actually, in this book that describe quite a bit how that convening even came to, to take place, um, what the interventions were that happened because of it. But the most important thing I want to share with you today is very simply this call that seven black women artists, performers, with different relationships to the words black women, performer, came together without really knowing each other or what we were going to make to create. And so that call... Haha, which is right here, yep. Goes a little bit something like this. Call and response artists announced the call Experiments in Joy. From, from Lagos in Austin, Los Angeles, Louisville, Minneapolis, Chicago, Detroit, New York City, Cantifrica, Mexico City, Beirut, Banjul, and Yellow Springs, Ohio, we have arrived. We are a diverse group of seven black women artists with different relationships to the words black women in performance. For five days, we shared stories and forged a process. We debated privilege, agency, and forgiveness. We worked, played, laughed, sang, presented work, and considered what we are all called to do. So we came together and we created these questions, or we we articulated a series of questions that helped us think through what kind of artistic responses or what kinds of artistic actions did we want to solicit from others and elicit from ourselves. 
Here are some of the questions. What is the urgency of our invention? How can we engage in collective imagining? How does our work change when we create from a place of freedom? What is irresistible to us? Are you available to yourself and to your calling? How can we negotiate invisibility and hypervisibility in productive ways? How do we undefine the defined? How can we sustainably care for and be accountable to ourselves and one another? How can we move through or without fear? How can we achieve radical openness? How can we claim joy? In response to these questions, we call you to conduct experiments in joy. How do you conduct an experiment in joy? Here's how. Step one, tell the truth. Step two, make something new. Step three, invite someone in. Step four, document. Step five, repeat. So this is the spine, or one of the organizing principles of this book, these five steps. And because so many of us in this room are writers, I wanted to make sure to share this model, have you hear some of those questions, and also to think about what those five steps might mean in your own writing practice, what those steps might mean in your own practice of living and being in the world, especially that first step, step one, tell the truth. These are the seven artists of call and response in the first phase of the project. And I just want to put their names in the air because I think that it's important. Um, just to, I feel that naming and calling is super important, so I want to call their names. This is Awilda Rodriguez-Lora from Puerto Rico, Rosamond S. King from New York City, Ward Natasha Okonji, who lives in Lagos, Murray, regular, so if you read Swallow the Fish, there's Murray. Kenyatta Isi Hinkle, who was living in LA and now is um, teaching in the painting, and actually he's running the painting studio as an assistant professor at UC Berkeley. There I am, and there's Duriel E. Harris in Chicago. So these are the artists together who collaboratively created that call. Tell the truth. We probably won't be able to get through all the steps, but I thought it could be fun to give an example of how some of these precepts maybe function in terms of this particular book. So there are some truths that are very easy, or at least for me, I find them to be very easy to articulate. For example, as difficult as that has been for some people to articulate, that's a very clear truth for me. <laughs> there are other truths that I also feel or understand very deeply, but are more complicated to articulate. Something like this. The cycle 
of existence or life or how energy might move through the spirit world into birth into the living world through death and return back to the spirit world for me this is a kind of truth as well to tell but really a much harder truth thinking about the writers in the room i wanted to just read something i don't haven't read this out loud and i'm not most of these things that i'm reading i'm just reading little excerpts too so these are teasers for you Teases for you to read the rest of them. And is this book going to be in the library or on reserve somewhere? So, you know, if there are people who they're not able, let's say, to buy a book today, at least you'll still have access. But I wanted to say something about the world of writing, at least the way that I've experienced it, or the literary world. So this is a section from a text called Aesthetic Crossing. And this is dedicated to my friend Michelle Nakapierce, actually, who teaches at Nairobi University. Aesthetic crossings. Maybe it's because of my many years in the Twin Cities. Maybe it's because I've often been the only or almost only black face in the crowd at a particular poetry reading. But here's what I've noticed. If you go to a poetry reading in Minneapolis, the people in the audience look like relatives of the reader quote, innovative, end quote, language poets get, quote, innovative, end quote, languagey crowds. <laughs> spoken word poets get spoken word crowds, notably younger and browner. NPR poets get crowds proudly sporting their NPR tote bags. <laughs> and hipsters, of course, get hipsters. This is not just a matter of taste, but rather a self-selected social stratification, a claiming and perpetuating of intellectualized social space. I want to crack open this space, or rather, I want to inhabit, fill, and layer it in different ways. This is my utopia. This is not easy. In fact, it is quite difficult. What is difficulty? Charles Bernstein has some ideas. That, that, that. You can read about that. Audrey Lord has some ideas. That, that, that. You can read about that. For many teachers and practitioners of innovative poetry, Lucille Clifton is actually more difficult than Gertrude Stein. Now, let me step out. How many of you know who Lucille Clifton is? I know Cosmo does. Okay. In a word, who is Lucille Clifton? Or a phrase? Anybody? You can't do it in a word or a phrase. phrase. No, no. I know. Goddess. Sentence. Uh, the best love poet in, in, in the U.S. history. In the U.S. history. Okay. More than Emily Dickinson. Yeah. More than black, Walt Whitman. She's a black poet from the 20th century. Yes, black poet from the 20th century whose poems are deceptively simple. Or which is to say you can read them and understand what they say without great difficulty. And then Gertrude Stein. Anybody? Goddess. Goddess, okay. <laughs> also quite well-loved poet of the 20th century. Uh, 
she is deceptively difficult to read, we could say. Or people have said, but what if we think about someone like Lucille Clifton as actually more difficult than Gertrude Stein? Why? Well, some readers can't, quote, relate, end quote, or deal with the body in her lost baby home, her meditation on race, gender, and motherhood. Some people can't relate or deal with the social location from which she writes and the social location it might imply for them as readers, how her poems bring readers into her subjectivity, but also make them aware of their own separate, socially located subjectivity. Some might say Clifton's poems are, quote, challenging enough, or that her syntax isn't surprising. But what they're really saying is, I don't want to talk about this work. I don't know how to talk about this work. I don't know what to say. I'm not comfortable. This isn't my kind of poetry, or perhaps this isn't my kind of person. This at least has been my observation. I want my students to embrace the difficulty of poetry, all kinds of difficulty in all kinds of poems. Both Gertrude Stein and Lucille Clifton are or can be difficult depending on who you are, where you're from, and what kind of training you've received in reading poetry. Both poets deserve to be read along with Bernstein and Lord. Reading both together helps us read each one the other and each other. So I know that there are some people who have to go to class, so I, maybe we'll pause or stop right there. I know, see, I saw you. And you were trying so hard not to be rude. Thank you for touching my hair, I know. That was rough. That was rough. Anybody else? need to leave right this minute, because maybe I'll just do one other, I'll just show you maybe one other thing, and then we can have Q&A. How does that sound? Okay, I just wanted to show you something that I think is so amazing, and I don't know how many people have had a chance. When I think about making something new, there's a text in my book called Breaking the Frame, and rethinking about especially what political writing can be, or response to political issues. But I want to show you a kind of visual art architecture space of this. How many of you all know, I mean, have seen this idea of like color theory? In, all right. So this incredible architect and artist named Amanda Williams came up with colored theory. And she took the colors that she found in her community in Chicago and she built a whole color grid based on that. So you have ultra sheen blue, pink oil moisturizer pink, Harold's chicken red, currency exchange yellow, city board up gray, flaming red hats, red hat, and then Newport Square is blue. And I felt that that was such an incredible example, both of actually telling the truth, seeing and telling the truth about what you see, and then making what you see something new. And she took her new colors, and she went to boarded houses in South Chicago, South Side of Chicago where she lives, and she painted these houses in these colors. 
And I feel like that, for me, is so powerful in terms of how our creativity and imaginings, the way that we can make something new, how we can bring them out into the world. So just to close, I'm just going to read. I, there's a lot of scores in this book. If there are people who need support and help writing something new or making something new, this book has a lot of grids. And in Breaking the Frame, I wrote this with Steve Hultsworth, who's an artist in St. Louis. This is what the score is. Breaking the Frame, number one, mark the frame. Number two, identify the tropes. Number three, queer the frame, play. Do something different, tone, medium, materials. Number four, discover something. Create something proactive. Number five, reflect, perform, discuss, in solidarity, enjoy. Thank you very much. piece that I actually write about in my first book, Swallow the Fish. This was a piece called Berlitz, and it took place in 2004, so that was 
some time ago, but I think that the, the issues that were in the piece are very much still with us. This piece was basically commissioned for a symposium called Yari Yari that is, was organized by the Organization of Women Writers of Africa. They were interested in globalization. And so I was interested in particular hip-hop and how I had been places all around the world and everywhere hip-hop had preceded me, but really specifically not just the music and not just kind of anthems of like resistance, fight the power, but also these hip-hop videos with scantily clad black women in them in environments and in countries where there really weren't black women at all, but they had seen that and then I walked into that frame and that was the association that they had about me. So I thought that was kind of interesting, and I was especially interested in how like somebody else's party can be someone else's, one person's party can be another person's sort of trash. So that's where these balloons, and some parts in the piece, you see whole balloons, and then and in other parts there's like a bag lady with these dead balloons that are inside of it. This box, there was sort of a, this was sort of the birthday party part, like, oh, it's a birthday, oh, wait a minute, oh, look at all these balloons. And then, at that time, see, people, people don't even listen to this anymore, but especially, it was, um, it was Puffy and Mace's been around the world, so that was like globalization and being around the world. So then I just started to take off my clothes, I was in my brassiere, and in my underpants, I was in my heels, and then I'd get in the box, I just started dancing in the box, and then all of a sudden it flips, and then the box all of a sudden is dancing and is coming down over me, and then now I'm in the box, and by the end of the piece you can't even see me. So this is giving, this is sort of showing you that dancing, and then it kind of comes down and down and down until I'm inside of it, and that's all I am. I'm now just in this box. Thank you for that question. Hi. I just want to thank you for this performance. It was amazing. Oh, um, yeah. The image I wanted to talk about was the final image of the artist of the Yes. Uh, coming from Puerto Rico, abandoned spaces, very similar to Detroit, like just spaces that cannot be afforded and cannot be filled. They're forbidden or illegal to enter. I really wanted to ask you about concerning. Yes. <laughs> uh, concerning uh, framework, this idea of. I've been framing and uh, tactics people talking about this in like deconstruction and a white person's world. Uh -huh. I talked about this in not deconstruction in theory, but in reconstruction in action, in our actions. How can we take these spaces that were ours and again take them back? Ah, uh, yes. And this is where I feel like what Amanda Williams is doing in her work with color theory is it becomes a really beautiful visual, like a manifestation of something that some of these scores is inviting us to try to do with our writing, with our art making, with our performance, with our citizenship. So I feel like an answer to your question that I get when I think about what she has done is first of all, she doesn't write off the space as being abandoned or useless or ruined or terrible. I mean, these are spaces, she's not a tourist. This is her city, this is her community. So she's there, and also she recognizes that something has happened there where some of that power or some of the constructed nature of it 
some of what it is, is is not as strong or as vibrant or as coherent or as connected or it's not um, as activated or as useful for the community as it could be. So then, what does she do? She does something absolutely useless. She does something completely cosmetic where she paints it. And see, this is where this is the intervention of the artist that comes in. Because she doesn't like rewire these houses with electricity. She doesn't go through a process of, you know, kind of like rezoning it for the city, although those could be art projects and there are artists that are involved in that. But I just love that she paints the house to get the people in her community to see the spaces differently. So this house, which is the Crown Royal Purple, she told a story, I heard her speak, where there was someone in the community that came and said, hey, wait, is Prince coming to town? Is, like, is, and basically, like, is Prince going to come and perform in this house? Well, just the imagination, like, wow, she did something where there's someone in the community who now thinks that this place that they pass every day would be a place of interest for Prince to come or for someone to come. So it's about, that's the shift to me. A shift in thinking about value, a, a shift in thinking and believing that places that have been evacuated that actually can be, actually do have value and that we can fill them and imbue them with even more value based on our interface of our own kind of um, creative investment in what they are and what they can be. That would be my answer to that question. Okay. Hi. Thank you so much for your performance. And um, I was interested in the Venus Hottentot. Yes. Hottentot Venus um, image and sort of how you engage and, and thinking about um, how making something new is, is tied to that. Yes, and I, and it's it's such a provocation to talk about making some make make something new, <laughs> because that's such a modernist idea, like make it new, as if anything can be new. Maybe it's new for us, right? Or maybe it's renewing something. Um, what was new here? And you know, I just redid this piece actually in Chicago last week. I occasionally pull this out. And this is what it was. Uh, it was an academic talk. It wasn't even a reading. I was billed at Mount Holyoke College to give a talk. And then I just talked to the people there, you know, the person, my host. I said, you know, this is the thing I want to do. Okay? <laughs> and they gave like this really formal, much in the formal kind of, you know, Gabrielle's a little procedure, PhD, compared to blah, blah, blah. Right, whatever. And then there was a theater professor. Um, he was a white man, and I asked him beforehand to say, step right up, and this is also in Swallow the Fish, and then I just took my dress off, and I was wearing underpants and a brassiere, and I you know, like, stood up on this table, and then turned, turned, turned in a series of specific poses, stepped down, put my dress back on, and then said to everyone in the room, now turn to your neighbor and say, what just happened here? <laughs> and that was the performance. And then the conversation that we had about what happened then led, I mean, that took a whole other turn. So there is something, I mean, I think what I have learned 
as a performance artist. And I have to chuckle because, you know, I might be like, oh, I'm so artsy. <laughs> but often, the thing, the big takeaway, when I did this huge big thing in Atlanta one time, and I had this rubber chicken, I had all this stuff. And then there was a, a young man that came up to me, a young black man, and he said, I just, what you just did, it's amazing because your chest is so big and you're not ashamed of it. Like, there's always this moment where it comes down to this great surprise that I am even in the space, that I am even in the frame. So for some people, and this could even be a response that you're having right now, if it is, there's no, I mean, I'm not offended by this. If you've not seen anyone like me before, if you've not seen anyone like me act the way that I act or do what I do, that by itself can just be the first level and you can't, I just have found people who they're like, you know what, I didn't even get to what you were saying. I was too busy like surprised that you were even there. And that to me is what that piece is about. And that surprise is connected to that, that black female body as source of titillation, source of attraction and repulsion, source of desire, source of, you know, like that's what this whole thing is about. And that's something I don't have to do anything. All I have to do is, is show up and that's already being activated. So my job then is not to shrink from that or let that control me, but to try to claim that and flip it over. That's part of what I try in my best iterations to do. I'm not always successful, and certainly in my personal affairs, I'm not always successful. But in performance, then, that gives me a space to, to work that out a little bit. And then in writing, writing is also a space of performance and of representation and of reclamation. And the, that's that intersection that I'm interested in. How are we doing in time? Should we shut it down? Yeah, you just, you know what, you need to tell me. Yes. Professor Ali. Hi. Hi. Um, so, um, as I was watching you walk down the aisle and do the touch, my mm -hmm. hair piece, um, it, I thought of it as um, like a flip side to the Yoko Ono's mm -hmm. cut piece. Oh, yeah. Where she's inviting people to act upon her, but there isn't the agency that you then sort of played with responding or being angry at the people who follow through. And I'm really interested in the relationship between um, the, like, the, the active ownership of the process by the artist and the part that remains collaborative with others if you're collaborating with them, for example, the women that were in the collective, mm -hmm. but also, you know, you invited the audience to respond, you know, orally or in their bodies to your performance as well. So rather than have an artist on the stage and an audience whose job it is to sit quietly mm -hmm. and not interact but receive and then give your love back to them. I mean, that's like the traditional model of how this happens, but what you're doing is entering the space of the audience and inviting a certain response. So I want to know what's, what, yeah, I guess what are, what, you know, what does that say for you as an individual artist and then what you just mentioned, which was, the writing process itself, because I see this book as a collaborative art project in itself. Yes. I mean, it's not just a book to be read and thought of, but it's actually giving the scores and... Yes, yes. Do you understand? So I'm not yes. really sure what I'm asking you, but <laughs> you could reflect on what is at stake in the collaborative action. Oh my goodness. 
Thank you for that. And first of all, thank you for lifting up Yoko Ono because I love Yoko so much. I stand for Yoko. There's a problem with Yoko, come to me. Because I will, I will share with you why you need to bow down in front of Yoko Ono. Um, so that's one thing. Two, for those of you who don't know about cut piece, that is such an extraordinary piece. And I know that when I was teaching performance at Indiana College, we would redo that piece. And my friend Marcus Young will, has redone it many times, like with the same group of people, to try to because it's all about agency and power and receiving. And the question: If you invite someone to do something to you, who has the power? You or them? And how does that get negotiated? Now, I, I mean, and then also she was very consciously working with stereotypes around Asian women and the submissive Asian woman. And so what happens when she plays into that, except that she's in complete control, I think, of what's happening. Although anytime you're dealing with an audience, there's an element that's out of your control. I mean, in fact, I don't know, did I put a slide of this? I mean, I had a performance that went completely haywire. Oh, I didn't put it on here. And I mean, people were like throwing things at me and like beating the wall. I mean, I just like lost control of the room completely. I opened up a door and they walk through it. <laughs> and that can happen. And I think about, there was a conversation between Maria Abramovich and Laurie Anderson years ago in Bomb Magazine, where they talked, they said, in that conversation, I don't remember which one said it, but it's like the performance artist must be 50% in complete control and 50% completely free. And there's something about that that does also connect with writing, where Different people have different processes. I know, I remember Colson Whitehead saying that he knows exactly what's gonna happen. Like he figures out the entire plot of all of his books before he writes them because he thinks that's style. Just to work out how to put the language down is, is so hard that he can't be figuring that out and also figuring out what, what's gonna happen. But then there are other writers that don't have any idea where the book is gonna go and they try to hold off figuring that out to the very last minute, maybe until the book is done, and they read and say, "Oh, this is what it, this is what it was," you know. So for me, I'm somewhere in between, and that has to do with the relationship between writing and performance for me. I think the stakes for me, I'm just—I mean, there's a lot to reflect on in your question, but I do want to just maybe throw this here. Um, the stakes for interaction for me are harder because I recognize that whatever it is that I'm doing whether I want to or not, I'm always still representing a group of people. So when I come and I say, like, go ahead, touch my hair, I know it's like undoing all of the trainings, all microaggressions that the college has had, and it's sort of like, oh, now some people are gonna think that they can go and do whatever, you know what I mean? There's always this sense of, oh, there are people that are gonna hold me responsible if I break the frame and do something different than for what else is happening. And that's interesting to me. I mean, I've been told, even with the displays after a Venus piece, I remember I had a black woman say to me, like, now, I'm troubled by that because then you take off your clothes and you leave, and then I'm left with the ramifications of what it was that you just did. So, I mean, I definitely hear that. And I just don't want to be controlled by that box. I feel like part of what I was, I was raised with such a strict, or such a very... Um, unrelenting idea about what comportment and behavior was, and it led to some kinds of success, and it also led to other kinds of sadnesses and 
repressions, and that's in the book as well, really discussing what, what, what are the ramifications of all of this good girlness? What, what gets lost in that? So what happens? Where is the space for risk and perversity? and for clear, grounded interaction with someone else, recognizing that it could go haywire. You could go haywire. So, so just that's where that groundedness at the beginning, and to be clear, what is it that you're actually trying to do? So like in my work, if I'm taking my clothes off, it's not to shock you. If I'm invoking the Venus hot and tie, that's not gratuitous. You know what I mean? That's very deliberate what it is that I'm doing. Um, and so for people that are making performance, and similarly, just because someone can write whatever they want, and there's a First Amendment in the United States, does that mean that we should just write whatever we want, that we should just use whatever language happens to be there? There's something about deliberateness, groundedness, thoughtfulness, that then also balances or attempts to complement that risk in the stakes then. That's, that's how the stakes get measured. Thank you all so much. First of all, I want that Gabrielle has books for sale and that Gabrielle will be back next, uh, next week, May 1st. May 1st, 3 to 5, and it's a workshop, Experiments Enjoy Activating Your Voice. So for those who are interested in pursuing these books, are moved to sell at a discounted price of $10. Oh my goodness. Cash. Or Venmo. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you all. Professor Springer. I like that.